Well, good morning, Christ Chapel, and hello to all of you joining us at the West Campus, South Campus, Hive, Converge, streaming online, wherever you are, no matter where you are, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, if you're in one of our venues and opening one of those blue Bibles, it's page 828. You will need a copy of the scriptures and you'll also need your sermon notes. Some of the things that we're going to be talking about, I want you to be able to write on. They're things that are not going to be coming up on the screen. So please get out Bible and sermon notes. Those will be imperative for you today. Okay, how many of you have heard the phrase, a picture's worth a thousand words? If you don't raise your hand, I don't know where you've been your entire life. Um, you've heard that phrase, very familiar phrase. Well, today I want to show you some pictures uh, that you may think are conveying some particular words, but uh, actually uh, there's a story behind the, the many words uh, that are shown in this picture. I, I'll explain because these are uh, the engagement photos that Jen and I took. You know, the pictures that you took before you, you get married. And so uh, the, this, was, uh, almost, this was about 15 years ago. We went to downtown Fort Worth. It looks like we owned the place. Um, uh, and there's Jen trying to run away from me. Um, and she thinks it's really fun, um, but uh, th we went downtown. You know, these, these were those photos that you really look forward to. When I uh, saw them of my buddies and their fiancés and whatnot, I was like, man, it just looks so fun. I mean, it's just this blissful moment and, you know, where couples look at each other with these oogly eyes and it just looks so organic and so comforting and they look so happy. Okay, so there's the pictures Here's the thousand words, all right? Um, it, that, those, those pictures were scheduled for sunset. And uh, we had run downtown. I was gonna meet Jen downtown uh, after I got off work. And so I meet her downtown. Jen is, has, uh, she, Jen is very creative. My, by the way, I have permission to tell you all of this, okay? Um, but uh, she's very creative. And so she had a bunch of uh, thoughts about the, the scenes that she wanted, scenes, scenes that she wanted, the outfits and wardrobes and all those things that she was going to do. So when I meet her downtown, she is in a frenzy uh, because this is sunset. I mean, how, how, how big is that window? Not very big. And she's got a bunch of things that she wants to do. And so I get there and she is uh, changing in her car. So I walk away. She's changing over there. She changes into whatever she's changing into. She runs out and I'm like, hi, walks right past me, goes to the photographer. They start working out where we're going to be. And she's like, okay, come over here. And so I'm like, uh, okay. So I walk, walk over there and the photographer gets set. And then Jen looks at me and she goes, hug me. And I was like, uh, hello, excuse me? And she's like, would you hurry, just hurry up and hug me? And I was like, I don't feel like hugging you right now. <laughs> and and th the rest of the night went just like that. With Jen commanding me how I should uh, perform or how I should look for these particular pictures. And so the entire night, which was only, I mean, it was really only about 45 minutes that, that the, the, you know, we were taking these pictures because it was sunset. I mean, it was like, hug me, love me, you know, look at me, you know, like you mean it. And I'm like, oh, so much pressure. 
You know, we, we, and we, we haven't even connected. I just got here after work. It was stressful. It, it was awful, <laughs> honestly. It, none of that I had imagined was really what was going to happen when I looked at everybody else's pictures, which, you know, got me to the point where, you know, she's telling me to love her, hug her, kiss her, whatever. And I'm like, can you really do that? Like, I'm not a robot. You can't just tell me how to feel. And that really gets into what we're going to be talking about today, because the passage that we're going to look at today really sounds like God is commanding us how to feel. Can he do that? Look at, the, look at uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. Jesus said to this particular person, which we'll get into context in in just a moment, but he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds like Jesus is commanding you and commanding me how to feel. Like he's standing there going, love me. Hug me like you mean it. And we stand at it. Can you tell me to do that? Can you tell me how to feel? Can you command? Aren't you, Jesus, supposed to woo me? Aren't we supposed to connect before you just command me to, to feel these things toward you? Well, that really sets up everything that we're talking about today because I don't think he's just commanding us how to feel. There's got to be more to what Jesus is saying, and that's what we're going to be talking about today as we continue our series uh, Inside Out. And what I want you to see today is I, I want you to see how for us to love God the way that he wants us to love him, then we have to be changed on the inside. We are not just robotic uh, instruments that can turn it on and turn it off per se. And you all know that um, because you are in friendships, you are in relationships, you are in marriages, and you know how those feelings come and go. So there's got to be something different, and that's what I want to explore today. So just to give you uh, some context, uh, remember this is the, actually the third of three tests that Jesus is being put through. Last week we talked about the first test at all of our campuses where we talked about how Jesus said, you know, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. That was the first test was about taxes. The second test we're not covering, which is about marriage and this person who gets remarried all these times and all this stuff, and we're not covering that test. That was by the Sadducees. And so then, now we're going to cover the third test. And the third test begins there uh, in verses 34. Let's look at verses 34 to 36, and then I'm going to add verse 40 on there just to set some context for what we're studying today. It said, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that was the second test, they gathered together the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? That's the test. 
And then if you look at verse 40, Jesus answers and he sums up. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we're connecting the law and the prophets to the question or the trap that is being set for Jesus as to what is the greatest commandment. So context, Pharisees and Sadducees, these were religious leaders of the day. Probably the easiest way to think about it today is these are two different denominations coming together to basically entrap Jesus. And this lawyer comes out and he says, I'll ask Jesus this question. Now, this lawyer was probably an expert in the Old Testament law, but he may have even been an actual lawyer. He is used to arbitrating, mediating, or even adjudicating judgments on people. So he knows, if anybody knows how to trap somebody, it's, it's, this, it's this lawyer. So he comes out, it's the third and really, I think, the greatest test that Jesus has thrown at right, right here. And the question is, what's the greatest commandment? And the reason why that's a test is, I think they're seeing, what will he exclude? Because as soon as he says it's this commandment, then he's saying it's not all these. And remember, this person could have asked about the commandments as far as the 613 Old Testament commandments that were in the law, 365 negative, 248 positive, or he could have been asking which of the 10 commandments was the greatest. I don't know which exactly uh, he was doing there. But he's saying which one of those is the greatest. As soon as Jesus says it's this one, they go, aha, so you don't care about this one and you don't care about that one? And if he included the ones that were the one about God, then they go, oh, so you don't care about other people. Or you say he cares about other people and you go, oh, you don't care about God. It's this, it's this trap of it doesn't matter which way he goes, he's excluded another one. And Jesus does something that is truly genius when he summarizes all the commands and he gives us two commands and he says, on these, the law and the prophets hang. He basically summarizes, he doesn't pick one, he summarizes those 613 or the 10, however you, you think he's asking the question. And he summarizes, he says, on these two, just do these. And he simplifies all of the law in these two very simple uh, commands. I try to think of an analogy, and since it's college football season, of course it's college football analogy. But I, I thought, you know, if somebody came to football Jesus and asked him, what is the key to having a winning program? You know, and they would say, you know, is it third down conversions? Is it good coaching? Is it a great quarterback? Is it good culture? You know, you could pick all these little things. And Jesus said, the key is scoring more points than your opponent. <laughs> and the second is like it. Have a defense that allows less points than you score. You're like, football Jesus is genius, you know? Like, wow, I mean, that really is the key to a winning program. That's what Jesus does here when he talks about the law. What is the greatest? I mean, he simplifies it. He doesn't take all these little bits and pieces. And so therefore, he gets out of the trap that they set for him. And in fact, not only does he get out of the trap because it says in the Gospel of Mark that they dared not ask him another question after this. So he's not only out of the trap, he actually turns the trap on them. Now, by his answer, they are entrapped. 
And what I want to show you is how they're entrapped. Because when we talk about commandments, the commandments that are given in Scripture are not only guides, behavioral guides in a sense, of how we're supposed to honor God with our lives and how we're supposed to treat other people. But the other point of the law, as Galatians chapter 3 talks about, is it's supposed to show us a picture of a perfect and holy God. And Jesus lived that picture of a holy God out perfectly. The thousand words are here. Jesus was the picture that was worth these thousand words to live it out perfectly and sinlessly. And what we realize by his life and these thousand words is we fall short. We cannot fulfill the law. And so when he gives them those two commandments, it's condemning on them. Because they cannot fulfill these commandments. And so what I want to do is explain these two commandments that he summarizes all the law and the prophets. I want to explain them, but I also think it causes us to evaluate our own lives. But there's a, then there's an invitation that we can live out these great commandments. And so that's what I want to do with the rest of our time is walk you through these uh, two commandments. So Uh, First, when Jesus is asked, what is the great commandment? He says this, God commands that we love him fully. God commands that we love him fully. Look at verses 37 and 38. When he's asked that question, what's the greatest commandment? He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, this command comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And the second one comes from an Old Testament passage, which I'll tell you in a second. But this commandment comes, it's, it's called in, in Jewish culture, the Shema. This was basically the Jewish credo. This is what they, this is, would have been repeated twice daily by faithful Jews. This would have been memorized by young children. In fact, to this day, if you go to a Jewish worship service, they will repeat the, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, at the beginning of the worship service. This is, this is what everything hangs around, is that we are supposed to love God fully. Now, I'm not going to go into all the nuances of heart and the difference between the heart and the soul. You get it. The point is with everything you got. That is how you are supposed to love God. With your attention, with the things that you think about, with the things that you say, with your actions, with your motivation, with your determination, All of those things, those should all be centered on loving God. And not only loving God in this way that we love things in this world. um, Remember the biblical definition of of these different loves. There are three different kinds of words for love. So you you have kind of the, the passionate love, the eros. You have the phileo, that is the companionship kind of love. That's not the love he's talking about here. This is the deeper kind. That includes those, but this is the agape love. The one that that sets its affections on the betterment of someone else. That's why oftentimes when we define agape love, we talk about it as sacrificial love. 
Because we are willing, when we love something with agape love, we will sacrifice for it because we care more about that, their betterment than our own benefit. And so that's the love that he's talking about here. It's this all-encompassing, deepest of the deep level of love for God. And so my evaluation or question for you is, how's that going? Do you see why I say how he turns the trap on them? I, Cody McQueen, fall short of loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind. Every day. And I, I'm, I'm, I fall short. And, and, and sometimes, I, sometimes when I'm sensitive to, to what the Spirit is doing, that, that's, that is hard for me. But how, how are you doing? Are you loving God fully? Take those three categories with your heart, with your soul, with your mind. Three easy categories to try to think through there with your emotions, with your attention, all of those things. How, how is that going for you? And I just want, uh, I'm going to make a, a jump here real fast. I'm going to equate, for, for our conversation's sake, I'm going to equate loving God fully with calling yourself a Christian. Okay? I think that's fair, Right? Is that fair? Okay. So if you call yourself a Christian, I believe that you should have an aspect of, of a love for God in each of these areas. Now, obviously, those will have varying degrees, but if you call yourself a believer and you have zero affection for God, there is cause for concern. Or if you say, I call myself a Christian because my parents baptized me as an infant when I was really little, and, but none of the rest of your life points to the fact that you love Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, cause for concern. Now, I, I'm, I'm not saying that, that we should be overly emotional, or, or I'm not saying that we should be overly intellectual. This is all a balanced deal. But I'm saying, if you are completely void of one of these, you probably need to go back and evaluate your love for God. You see, because those things will ebb and flow. Uh, just like when I was taking those pictures with Jen, my emotion ebbed and flowed. At that very time, there was not much uh, love, not, not any eros, not phileo, not agape. It, 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 there's, I had lost that love and feeling at the time. But that, that determination, the determinative love down there, that was still there, still loved her, and saw us through. And that so these are different, at different times in your life, in your walk with God, those will ebb and flow. But there should always be some sort of element there. And if you're missing one, cause for concern. But see, as I told you, I, this is condemning for me because I definitely fall short. I want to love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, but my heart is very fickle. And that's why if we are going to love God the way that he calls us to love him and commands us to love him, then we're going to need new hearts. See, to love God fully, you need a new heart. 
You, you, need, you need a new heart transplant. You, you, need, you need your old heart to be gone, and you need his heart. You need him to give you a new heart. And he, in fact, tells us that's exactly what he does. In Ezekiel chapter 36, going back Old Testament on you now, but he says, uh, God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. Which tells me that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your heart of stone is removed and you are given a heart that is sensitive towards God, a heart of flesh, a heart that feels for God, a heart that is oriented toward the things that he cares for. And not only that, you're not in charge of that heart. God's spirit is in charge of that heart. And the more that you allow God's spirit to be in charge of that heart and not lock it down and be a heart of stone or hard-hearted towards God, then he will help you and cause you to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. He gives you a new heart to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what we need. We need new hearts, not just for the first time, but we need new hearts daily. Because as I told you, I fail on this every day. And so every day I wake up and I go, God, I need a new heart. I need you to soften my heart. I need you to give me that new heart that you promised so that I can walk in your statutes and be careful to obey your way. So here is an invitation to you. Ask him for a new heart for the first time or another time. Every day you ask him for a new heart because as you ask him for a new heart, your love for him will increase. And here's uh, how I know, I know that. And you, please jot this down at Luke chapter 7 and you can go back and read it later. But in Luke chapter 7, uh, there's uh, an account of a woman going in and Basically, she shows this extravagant amount of love toward Jesus, and people condemn her for it, and he's basically, at the end of it, says that she showed him extravagant love because she knew how much she was forgiven. He equates the depth of her love with the knowledge of her forgiveness, the depth of her depravity. And so how do we get a new heart for God? For the first time, you realize you are a sinner. You cannot meet the standard of a holy God who wants a relationship with you. And he met that standard by giving you his son so his son would die in your place. You'd realize that you cannot meet that standard and you accept his grace. You accept his forgiveness on your behalf. Every day, though, you say, Cody, I've made that decision. Great, every day. You know the depth of your depravity. I am a sinner saved by grace, absolutely. I, I, I am a saint because of Jesus' blood, just like all of you who have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. But man, I am a sinner. I understand the depth of my depravity. And every day, you get to wake up and call yourself a child of God. 
Guys, if that doesn't blow our minds, then we have hearts of stone. That thought should rock your world that God took you, an enemy of him, and now calls you his own. Crazy, crazy thoughts that are transformative for our life. You see, God gives us the means to love him fully by giving us this new heart, but he doesn't just give us this new heart so that we love him. He gives us this new heart so that we also love his people. We love others. See, God commands that we not only love him fully, but that we love others fully. God doesn't just give you his unconditional love so that you can keep it to yourself. He gives you his unconditional, unlimited love so it flows out from you. It it overflows from your life and flows to other people. And he wants that. He doesn't want you to just be a repository of his grace and forgiveness and kindness and abundant love and blessing. He wants that to overflow, to pour out onto other people. That's why he says in verse 39. And a second is like it when he talks about the great commands. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two are tied together. And you're going to see that in just a moment. Jesus here is quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And so he's using Old Testament scriptures to summarize all of the law and the prophets. And he's saying, if you, I've gave you this new heart so you can love God fully, but the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I, I want to say something very quickly. I do not think Jesus is telling this person to love yourself. I think Jesus is assuming that we all love ourselves just fine. Uh, Paul actually reiterates that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. So we do love ourselves. We, we do put ourselves first. We do care for ourselves. We do have this determination to take care of ourselves. And he wants those thoughts, that kind of love, that kind of a drive, that agape to, to turn and be turned on and poured out onto someone else. The same way you think about yourself and care for yourself is the same way he wants you to think of and care for others. That's what he's talking about here. This is essentially, and you know this, this is where the golden rule comes from. Just just treat others the way that you would want to be treated. And it's very simple and very hard to do. Very, very hard to do. And so this, uh, this is the same uh, word that is used here for love is the same word that was used right there in the first commandment. It's agape love. It's not feel like it love. Uh, oftentimes when we talk about loving other people, um, if we're really honest, we don't feel like it. And agape love is not a feel like it love. It, it's a I set my mind, my will on, on doing that. On, on loving that person, even sacrificially. So, evaluation, how you doing? Are you treating others the way that you would want to be treated? 
Are, are you following the golden rule? Do you see how this trap is turned on us? <laughs> because, because I go, eh, I'm not always batting a thousand. Not even close. I treat myself really well. And I don't always treat others as well as I treat myself. And, and that's very convicting and condemning. And, and even the times that I think I'm loving others, sometimes I'm only loving others to love myself. See, see sometimes <laughs> it, it, it's, it's interesting. Manipulation masquerades as love. And sometimes we are, are going, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, really just because we want to manipulate somebody to do what we want them to do. We want to woo them in just so that we're more loved, and that's not agape love at all. I read a, a quote from a, a poet, very obscure, who said this about loving others, show me who you love and I will tell you who you are. I thought that was really interesting. Show me who you love, and I'll tell you who you are. Do you only love people who can give you something back? That says a lot about you. It says a lot about me, if so. Love people that, you know, you, you don't ask anything in return for? That says a lot. Show me who you love, and I will tell you who you are. You see, to love others fully... To love others with this agape love that God calls us to, you're going to need a satisfied soul. You have to have a satisfied soul. And what I mean by that is you cannot truly love with agape love another person until you understand how fully loved you are because we are so wicked and deceitful and manipulative human beings that we will end up trying to get something from them. And only when we come from a place of, of truly being satisfied by the love of God can we truly pour out that agape love on someone else. Or let me use a colloquial term these days that I've heard from young people. Young people talk about uh, sometimes how people are thirsty. You've heard this before, okay? They're desperate for attention or affection. And they're like, that person's thirsty. They, they want attention and infection. Guys, what Jesus says in John chapter 6 is any, anyone, he says, I am the bread of life. Anyone who is hungry, let him come to me and eat. Anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and they will be satisfied. They'll be thirsty no more. You see, we have to have satisfied souls in order to love people freely and fully the way that God calls us to love them. That's what he says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 to 21. He says, we love, why? Because God first loved us. And then listen to this connection. I mean, this is, this is uh, uh, putting these two greatest commandments. It's just repeated in 1 John. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother or his sister, then he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, and I would say also whoever is loved by God, 
must also love his brother, and I would say can love his brother or sister. Do you see how one comes before the other? You've got to understand how fully loved you are in order to fully love others the way that God calls you to love them. But that comes from a transformed life and a new heart. So here's the invitation. Is just be satisfied in his love. You can be fully satisfied in his love for you. Go to him and eat. Go to him and drink. Go to him first and stop asking people around you to be something that they can never be to you or live up to being. They can never satisfy that craving in your heart that desires that unconditional, overflowing, agape type of love. There's only one person who can do that for you in the person of Jesus Christ, fully. And it's unfair if we begin to ask other people to meet those needs that only God can meet, those deepest things. But once you accept it, now accept it in a way that it overflows. That where oh, uh, Jesus talks about that in another place, I won't go there, but we should, there are springs of living water in us. And when we are walking by the Spirit, remember the Spirit controls that new heart from Ezekiel chapter 36. If you go then to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, when it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. Do you know what he says at the end of that? Against such things there is no law. Against such things there is no limit. There is no boundary. Go and pour it out. Go love people as much as you want. Go be as joyful as you want. Go serve people as much. There's no law against that. There's no boundary. Go for it. Go, go, go love. And, and here, I just want to put these, this challenge in here for, for a couple of you. Because when we talk about loving others, first, some of you need to say it. There might be somebody in your life that you just need to say it to. Today, go tell someone you love them that you need to say it to. Second, you need to show it. No, don't just say it, show it. Show, walk the talk. And you might say, Cody, you cannot command me to do that. You're right, I can't command you to do it. God can, and God did. And here's the good news, and here is a bottom line for you. Because as we talk about can he command us how to feel, God does command you to love him and love others. But what God commands, he also empowers. God commands and empowers us to love the way that he loves us. See, the great news is whatever God commands, he empowers. Whatever he calls you to do, he will equip you to do. He's never going to ask you to do something without giving you the means to do it, ever. Whatever he calls you to, he equips you. Whatever he commands you to do, he empowers you to do, but it's all rooted in his agape love for you. Christ Chapel, let us not forget our first love and the way that he first loved us. God, thank you for your commands. Lord, thank you that uh, you not only command us to because it's God honoring, because it's community enriching, but because it's freeing for our souls but then you equip us to do it. You empower us to do it. And so, Lord God, 
May our hearts be open to hear from you. May you come into those dark corners where we don't love you fully. We don't love others the way that we love ourselves or you loved us. And Lord God, may you take us and use us for your sake, but also for our joy, our peace, our freedom, as we accept and are fully satisfied by your love. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.